Gideon is my brother, and he considers all uh, church services participatory. He's the Pentecostal in the group. <laughs> and if it's that or I, it's more. So, are you going to switch over? So, a man walks into a bank, pulls out a gun, and tells the teller to give him all the money in the drawers. After getting a bag full of cash, he goes to the first person in line and says, And what did you see? person looks at him and he's not, I don't know, I don't know where we are. <laughs> person looks at him, he's not wearing a mask, says, well, I saw you, I know what you look like, I'm going to tell the police, you're going to go to jail, and, that's, and then bang, shoots the guy right there in the stomach. Goes to the second guy in line, says, and what did you see? The guy pauses for a minute, not quite sure what to say, and says, well. I saw your face. I know what you look like. I'm going to tell the police. And bang, shoots the second guy in line. Goes to the third guy in line and says, what did you see? And everybody gets real quiet, hoping the guy finally gets the right answer. And he says, well, I didn't see anything. But my mother-in-law is standing right over there. She saw the whole thing. I'm allowed to tell that joke because I learned it from my father-in-law. And if you are offended by that joke, it's going to be a long night. Okay, so we're jumping in. Let me ask you a question. I, I just told you a particular kind of story. What kind of story was that? A joke. Yeah, a humorous story. How many of you knew right away it was a joke? Yeah. Now, now um, how did you know it was a joke? Like, think about how quickly your brain determined this is a fake story, this is a joke. Right? And maybe it was something I said. I said, so, that's a common joke entrance, right? Okay? And I told it in the present tense, so it wasn't in the past. I said, a man walks in. And anytime somebody walks in somewhere, it's a, probably a joke, right? It's normally, <laughs> normally a priest and a rabbi and, or somebody in a bar. But if they're walking in, see, your brain categorized that as a fake story automatically. Almost immediately. But then, so you knew it was a fake story. But then how many of you had an emotional reaction when somebody got shot in the story? You're like, somebody got shot? Wait, what? So your brain had already told you it was a fake story. But when something bad happened in the story, you still had a gut reaction to it, right? And you felt the tension as we went down the line from person to person. And then how many of you had an emotional reaction when I relieved the tension... And had a punchline. Oh, and now it's a fake story. Nobody really got shot in the making of this joke. Right? (laughs) Think about how your brain knew it was a fake story. And how quickly you had an emotional reaction even though you knew it was a fake story. Because stories do something to us. They suck us in. They engage us emotionally. We're drawn to them. How many of us have found the comfort of the escape of... A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Or once upon a time, right? Stories capture us. If you have a bunch of little kids running around and you start telling a story, it's the only thing that can bring them together, right? And it doesn't necessarily last very long, but stories (laughs) do something to us, right? I got fascinated with this idea of story, and when I was doing my doctoral work uh, for my doctor of ministry, decided to really study story and think about how story works. Are we still working? Okay, we'll get there. 
So here's a couple things about how story works. First of all, your brain works on story. Think about how quickly your brain figured out that that was a fake story. You are neurologically wired for story. In fact, your memory works on story. Uh, how many of you have done this? You move to a new town or you're somewhere and you get directions from somebody and they give directions based on stuff that used to be there. You know what I'm talking about? You get turn left where the old swing tree used to be and right at the old elementary school that's not there anymore. And you think, how is that helping me? Right? But when, when you drive around, you drive through your stories because your stories are how your memory works. In fact, probably there's certain intersections you remember conversations you had in the car with your spouse at that particular place because your memory is stored like that. This is also why some people can't tell stories. Do you have any of these people in your life that go to tell you a story and they bring in all kinds of information that has nothing to do with the story? Right? It's because it's stored in your brain like that. They've done research and they, they, they now can see how your brain works. And they tried to say, well, let's get somebody, let's ask a bunch of people to talk about their grandmother. And let's study in their brain where the grandmother section is. Because they assumed your brain was like a computer. And if we just went to the G section, we get grandma and there we go. But your brain doesn't work like that. When you want to talk about your grandma, your brain fires up everywhere. Because you're looking at stories. And if I asked you about your grandma, it would be very, very quick. You would start remembering. You don't even remember just your grandma. You remember your grandma standing somewhere particular on a day that you were with her, right? And if I ask you about your grandmother's house, you're going to remember what it looked like, but also what happened there. Oh, yeah, I remember I used to slide down that banister. You don't just remember a little piece. You remember in story. Um, I would guess that you've all experienced what evolutionary biologists have studied about story. What they have said is that when you have a story, uh, uh, the evolutionary biologists think that everything about a person has to have evolved for a certain survival characteristic. And so they're fascinated by how science is telling us again and again that your brain is based on story. Well, what does story have to do with survival? And what they have supposed is that what your brain does is train for future survival situations. So it would happen around with cavemen around the fire. They would tell their story and then they would learn for the next hunt, right? Or they would learn lessons from the past. You probably do this, by the way. How many of you, before a bad conversation or a session meeting, you're like playing it out in your head? You ever do this? Okay, if he says this, then I'm going to say this. And then, right? That's a survival. You're, you're imagining the story so that you can survive. Or how many of you, two hours after a session meeting, you think of the perfect comeback? Anybody? Like, it's never when I need it. It's always two hours later. But what's your brain doing? That's God's protection of you. Oh, maybe. What's, what are you, what's your brain doing? Your brain is replaying that, so next time you're prepared for it differently. Your brain is wired for story. You're always imagining. You're always dreaming. That's how human beings are. We're, not, we're storied beings. Why? Because fact number two, story is like life. Story has an impact on people. Because life is like story, right? You're right now in the scene of Weekirk. Or We Weekirk. I don't know that that's going to hang on. Um, 
Right? And it, it happens over time and it happens in seasons and we as characters change and new characters come into our story and we play all these different roles in our lives. We're pastors sometimes and we're parents and we're, we're involved in the community. All of these different uh, stories. Story is like life and sometimes we need a comic relief and sometimes we're scared and sometimes we need a Yoda to guide us and sometimes we need a Han Solo to hang out and be with us. Story is like life. And so our brain naturally works on it. Fact number three is that you identify with the protagonist. When you watch a movie, there's a, there's a character that's called the hero or the protagonist. They're the star of the movie. And, and what screenplay writers know is you are trying to be the protagonist in the story, the hero. So what they do is an author back there named Blake Snyder talks about save the cat. That in any movie, what we want is the lead character to do something really good, like save a cat is the metaphor, so that you'll like the character. Or you don't even have to like the character. If you at least can identify with that character, then you'll follow them throughout the movie, even if it's a bad character. How many of you have seen, not Rocky 1 or 2 or 3 or 4, but the other Rocky, okay, like 5, Rocky Balboa? They spend 45 minutes of that movie with no boxing. It's just Rocky doing nice thing after nice thing after nice thing. Why? Because it's the only way for us to get the friend, get you to care about Rocky at this point, right? They want him to be such a good guy, you'll cheer for him. You want to identify with and be the star of the movie because you're the star of your own movie. You're the star of your own life. And movies are great because it gives us a break from our lives. Have anybody experienced that? Right? You can go to a movie and you can live somebody else's life for a little while. Um, at the same time, they're meant to inspire us. You're never just neutrally watching a film, though. You're part of it. And that's why when the hero is scared, you feel scared. And when the hero is joyful, you're joyful because you go on that journey with them. You want to see yourself as this hero. The other thing that, that is true about stories, fact number four, is, is we try to embody stories. I learned this. Um, hey. I learned this from a guy named James K.A. Smith. He's got some books back there. And there's a great book um, called Mighty Stories, Dangerous Rituals. That really helps bring this out. But, but we're humans. And so when we have a story, we want to embody that story. We want to physically represent that story in some way. Okay? We have, wear these things called clothes, right? These are the costumes of our story. Okay? We, we want to physically. So if, if you are a Star Wars fan, you have a Star Wars keychain and you have a Star Wars shirt and you have all these things about you. Some of you have Presbyterian stuff on. Methodists don't have that shirt, right? Because that's not their story. You live, you, you want to live this story. In fact, we do all kinds of things to celebrate our stories, right? Kids graduate from college, we have some kind of ceremony. We have some kind of ritual to emphasize those parts of the story. Around here we have Pittsburgh Steelers fans. Are there anybody here today? Pittsburgh Steelers fans? Thank you, Gideon. You don't have to work real hard to pick Steelers fans out because they wear Steelers stuff, right? They get Steelers tattoo. You don't get much more embodied than putting ink in your skin as a tattoo. We talk about Steelers nation. I went to two Steelers games last year and uh, they were very cold. 
And so I wore Steeler stuff, but then I wore this winter stuff over, you know, because it was very cold. And I got these looks from people like, wait a minute, is that a Steelers fan? That could be a Ravens fan. I don't see any Steelers stuff. I was frightened. And I was just cold. I'm a Steelers fan. But they like people identify. Oh, no, Steelers fan, no Steelers fan. We even have a phrase. I've seen people say, I bleed black and gold. That's a, that's a phrase of embodiment, right? That's almost a religious phrase. I, I bleed black and gold. It's so much a part of who I am. See, we want to embody our stories. We want to wear them. And, and your, your story has to fit you, right? If I wear a Guns N' Roses shirt, it's not the same as wearing a Justin Bieber shirt. Those are different stories, okay? And... Uh, If you hear a kid blasting music in a car that pulls up next to you, that's a certain story depending on the music, okay? Um, I I saw this real tough guy pulled up in a a big Escalade or something, and Mariah Carey was blasting on a radio, and I thought, that's not right. That doesn't look right because the story doesn't fit. See, we want to live our stories. Commercials know this. Uh, Maybelline understands this, okay? Maybelline, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline, right? That's a story. The story is you're in the store somewhere and somebody sees you and they think, wow, that person's beautiful. Is that natural beauty or is it Maybelline? I don't know. See, I'm pretty sure it's never happened like that. But that's the story Maybelline sells. I I think the whole truck industry is like this. I have friends that have big, expensive trucks that they won't drive in the rain, right? And they won't get dirty. It's the entire Humvee industry, okay? You buy a vehicle designed for war and you won't drive it in the rain. You're trying to live a certain story. It's not about the truck, okay? Guts Glory Ram is a story, right? And Sam Elliott gets on there, Guts Glory Ram. I have never met someone who said, you know, I never had a lot of guts and I had very little glory. And then I bought a Ram truck. And ever since, right? Because sometimes we buy for the story we wish we had instead of the story we have. This is the midlife car purchase, okay? For the 50-year-old that wishes he was a 20-year-old, okay? Um, sometimes we buy for the, for the story we wish we had. I had a friend who was taking her son to buy a car. and Her son had cerebral palsy and uh, could not use his legs, but he could use his arms fine. And so he took a driver's test so that he could drive with his hands and uh, could buy a car that then uh, somebody could put, hook up so that he could drive with his hands. And he found the perfect car, and he loved it. And he was so excited about the car, except my friend hated the car because it had obviously caught on fire at some point. She said, like, the ceiling was not the color it was supposed to, and it sort of burnt out, and you could see the burn marks. You open the engine, there's none of that foam in the top, you know? So he wants this damaged car. And as we were talking about stories, she said, oh, my goodness. He sees himself as damaged. And he wants to buy a car that fits his story. He's attracted to and trying to embody the story that he thinks he's living Look at the amazing power of story. There was this great guy in the Bible named Nathan. And uh, Nathan was called by God to go see David. Now, if you remember the story, David is this warrior king. Everybody 
uh, everybody's scared of David. But for some reason, one year, he doesn't go out to war when he's supposed to. He just hangs out on the top of his castle, kind of moping, I don't know, uh, looking at naked women, apparently, because he sees Bathsheba. And uh, he takes her to be his own, and he basically, Godfather style, whacks her husband, right? Gets him killed in the front of the battle. And now he has a son with her. So it's been at least 10 months of David getting away with this. And God comes to Nathan and says, all right, I need to tell you, I need you to go tell David he's not supposed to do that, right? And Nathan must have thought, I'm pretty sure he knows he wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> like, there's, a, there's not a surprise out here. He knows he wasn't supposed to do that. So how do you, David's been getting away with it for a long time. How do you go approach the king to say, oh, you shouldn't have done that? Nathan tells him a story. A story of a rich man who has all these lambs, right? But when he gets company, he doesn't use one of his lambs. He goes and takes the lamb of this poor man that has, and it's the family pet, Right? That this family loved. And, and David gets mad. He gets angry. And he says, well, you know, you should do that guy. He should be killed for that. And Nathan says, you are the man. See, because David wants to be the protagonist in the story. He wants to be the hero. He understands, oh, this is, this is a story. It's supposed to have a good ending, right? It's supposed to follow these expectations. And uh, David's mad when it doesn't. And he ends up getting David to condemn his own behavior because of the story. There was this other guy, really good at stories, right? His name was Jesus. And when he went to teach, he would often tell stories. And there's one time where he's, he's hanging out with these sinners and tax collectors. They're the people that weren't ever allowed to go into the temple and be right with God. And then there are these Pharisees and scribes that are sitting back and they're not liking how this is all going. And so Jesus tells a story of two sons. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. That's a terrible name. Jesus himself says there was a father who had two sons. So uh, there's two sons, and it's really about the father. And Jesus said, well, there's this one son. He runs off and is crazy and wild and is living. We don't know how, but the elder brother seems to think it was with women. And then comes back. And he's accepted. And then the elder brother, um, he, he's been there the whole time. He's been the good son. And yet, he stands on the outside of the party, unwilling to accept the father's celebration of this younger brother going in. And you see what he's done. He has put both characters in the story to be the two groups, right? The, the tax collectors and the, the sinners, they're the, the younger brother who have been lost shouldn't be able to come home and do. And here's the Pharisees who should be celebrating, but they're not. He was, Jesus was a master storyteller because stories have this amazing power to teach ethics, to build connections. They were always key for remembering information. People would tell stories after their hunts to, to, so that they could learn from what had happened. We had songs and rituals Stories would be etched in pottery and on cave walls. But, but in the last 500 years, something has dramatically changed for stories. Um, I talk about stories lost and regained. The rise of the Enlightenment in the 1500s marked the downfall of stories. With the invention of the printing press, people didn't need to remember the same way they did because you could write it down and you could print it way cheaper. Um, so people didn't need to remember the same way. 
fact, I can prove it. What's your phone number? What's your church's phone number? And if we went three more names, I bet we'd run out of phone numbers you know. Okay? We don't remember our phone numbers because they're all in our phones now. The printing press did that to us. It changed the way we think. So information could be stored. More, more than that, suddenly because information was being shared, our way of thinking changed. So the Enlightenment started to see stories as not as trustworthy because there was this new thing called the scientific method. And what we needed to be was objective. So we needed to ignore our stories and ignore the stories of the things we were studying and just try to, uh, to be scientific about it. Of course, my teacher, Len Sweet, says whenever you try to be objective, you end up creating people into objects. And so we end up trying to be objective and certain meta-narratives, sort of overarching stories of the world began to take the place of these smaller stories. And they basically sort of went like this. That science is good, that progress is inevitable, and that the more people knew, the better we would all be to each other. Technology was destined to improve our lives. Now, in order for these meta-narratives to work, the small stories of our lives had to be set aside. We called that objectivity. The idea was to let science push humanity forward. So you're supposed to be objective. Hold yourself back, ignore the stories, and just look at the facts. In fact, even when I say story, a lot of times people think that that's somehow lesser than facts. That facts are what are really valuable and story is not. Of course, if you've ever written a love letter to your spouse, it wasn't fact-based. You are 5'6". You weigh this many pounds, right? You never put that in a letter, okay? <laughs> there are certain things that only poetry and story and metaphor can teach. It's not a higher than or lower than. There's just certain things you have to learn other ways. But in modernism, we tried to get to raw facts. In theology, this showed up with an increasing suspicious suspicion in the Bible, Scholars assumed that the text was untrue or tried to treat it as a historical artifact to be dissected. They approached the studies um, uh, as if they didn't believe the Bible, even if they did. And then you weren't allowed to use the Bible to look at other parts of the Bible. How many of you were taught that, right? If you're in this pericope, I don't even know who invented the word pericope, right? But in seminary, they would say pericope. You stay in this pericope, you just ignore all this other stuff. As if you could ever read Paul just as Paul without understanding the Old Testament. Right? The result was a faith that was based on verses instead of story. On criticism instead of faith. And on intellectual understanding of, in, instead of loving action towards the world. My, my teacher, Lens, we calls it versitis. We have versitis. And what we do is we just take the Bible and make it in these little individual chunks that fit on a coffee mug. Right? And we ignore other verses that would not look so good on a coffee mug, right? Like Tamar has never been cross-stitched, right? This, so inevitably, we pick and choose, right? Because some of those texts are neater than other texts. And as, a, as I heard Walter Brueggemann say once, well, what we end up doing with all this criticism is we explain away most of the most interesting parts of the text. Right? The worship service turns from the high point being the Eucharist, the ultimate expression in the church of embodying Christ, right? When we actually take part in that and instead makes it the sermon. Probably most devastating to the church was the fact that we lost sight of the story. 
In fact, today, you ask most people in your church to describe the story of the Bible. I think a lot of them would have trouble. Okay? Not just a story of the Bible. I'm saying the story of the Bible. Now listen, modernism brought wonderful things. Medicine, surgeries, knowledge about how people and groups work, exploration of the world, travel. My dad is back there and can see because of medical developments that happened in the last 10 years. He had something going on with his eyes. And just recently, they figured out how to fix that. So he can see today because of modernism. And modernism has brought some great things. And we're never going to do away with modernism, right? Because we want certain people to be fairly modern and facts-based, right? Like pilots, okay? We want our pilots to be pretty modern, okay? We want our doctors to be fairly modern. You don't want to go to a doctor and say, doctor, what's going on with me? And your doctor say, well, live your own truth, right? Well, doctor, do I have cancer or not? Well, I don't want to label you or put labels on for you, right? You want a doctor that's modern, okay, that's paying attention to these things. But in the end, modernism was not good on its promises, okay? There were some great things that happened, but, but also we got a lot better at harming each other, okay? And we had, in the last century, the Great Depression, two world wars, Hiroshima, the brutality of Auschwitz and Nazi Germany. The world still faces problems of poverty, ethnocentricity, and racism. This culminated really in the 1970s with Vietnam, Watergate, the civil rights movement, and the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., where something shifted in our culture, and we basically said, all right, modernism, that's it. And we've sort of, we sort of abandoned some of those beliefs about the inevitable progress of, of uh, science and of modernism, and we started to say, no, now we need to have our own truth. Okay? When, you, when a lot of your kids, how many of you had an encyclopedia where you went to the experts to see what was going to happen? Okay? I have Wikipedia. Okay? Where instead of listening to the experts, we group source. It's a total different way of thinking where we don't trust experts. Because okay? experts have their own agenda. We trust more the group. It's a totally different way of thinking. In fact, in reaction to the Enlightenment, there's this knee-jerk reaction, almost obsession towards story. That's why you get Facebook. Okay? And I'm not sure what I like or don't like about Facebook. But there are some people that are so into the minutia of their story, and I don't care what you're making for dinner. right? You've got to take a picture of everything your kid does. I don't need to know all of that. Right? But we, we're now, see the flip, that's a, that's a reaction from ignoring stories in the idea of objectivity to now an obsession with stories where we do try to speak our own truth. You know who really understands this is like ESPN and sports broadcasting because sports are a natural story, right? There's, a, there's two football teams out there to try to fight for the same objective. But then you get backstories, Right? of the characters and and who they're playing so that you want to cheer for these protagonists. Story is on the rise in conferences and books leading to new fields and approaching existing fields. You know, doctors can now take classes in story. How many of you try to tell your doctor a story and they don't want to hear it? They just want to look at your knee. You ever been there? Doctor, I want to tell you how this happened and I heard this pop sound and the doctor doesn't even, they just want to treat you as if you're a car, you're a machine. What they're finding is doctors sometimes need the information of your stories, so they're trying to train doctors now to listen to stories. 
Now they're trying to train uh, lawyers in stories because that's how uh, a lot of cases are, are being decided. There's a whole field called uh, neuro th- or narrative therapy. Really fascinating. Helping people, okay, you're living a bad story. What if we started to, te- te- to live a different story? What if we changed roles in the story, right? Whole group of, of uh, narrative therapy. Um, narrative approaches to brain injury where they're using story because it's so natural to the brain to retrain the brain to think after a severe brain injury. Even especially in business now, you can find a lot of stuff on story and leadership. In Christianity, we've had a greatest story ever told, what my teacher calls the greatest story never told. In biblical studies, though, you start to see this. And similar changes. And I think it owes a lot. Started the, the marker for a lot of narrative theologians is, is Karl Barth's commentary on the Romans in 1919. Karl Barth was the first person that said, forget all that ob- objectivity. I'm actually going to read this as a person of faith. And uh, he started a lot of this kind of a, a naive way of being a person of faith, acknowledging it, and then still trying to be solid in study. People like Brevard Childs and Hans Fry in Old and New Testament. And you're seeing more and more of this as we're getting narrative theology. People like Stanley Hauerwas, um, Walter Brueggemann, N.T. Wright, Jamie Smith, Kevin Van Hooser, my own teacher, Len Sweet. All trying to rethink a lot of this. So story is on the rise in our culture. It's seeing this big resurgence in the church as well. There are story Bibles. Story curriculum. Lots of titles back there with the word story in it. And I'm telling you, it's not just a fad. It's part of the way thinking is fundamentally changing. And our hymn writers knew this, right? I heard an old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. We've a story to tell the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right. A story of truth and mercy. A story of peace and light. Or sing this one with me. I love to tell the story. T'will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. many of us think of our faith as a story? For a lot of us, it's really a set of doctrines, a set of beliefs. But is it a story that we are practicing and embodying? I love this quote. This is Leslie Newbegin. always seemed to get this stuff. The business of the church is to tell and embody a story. That's what the church really comes down to. But we've often made it about facts. About doctrines. It reminds me of that musical, you know, Thoroughly Modern Presbyterians. 
And God gave us story. The Bible is written in story. If you go to the book of Numbers, which should probably be the least storied book in the Bible, it's actually the book of, how, of the story of how we got the numbers. It's not just an accounting spreadsheet, right? It's a story. The book of the law is really the book of the story of how we got the law. And when the prophets want to get a point across, they could tell a story or they would lay on a rock for a long time or eat very gross things, cooked on very gross things, right? They lived and embodied a story as an example for the people. Even Paul's letter, we in the modern world, we have loved Paul, right? Because he's so logical, right? But Paul is a master of metaphor. And metaphor is basically a small story. Okay? And if you want to understand Paul, you can't understand Paul without understanding his story. Okay? If you don't understand Paul and his relationship to Corinth, you can't get Corinthians. Okay? Even Paul has a real narrative sense. And what the church has done over time is given us practices. When we come to church, we pass the peace. Why? Because we need to be reminded of that in the story. We speak the creeds together. We stand up. We sit down. We take communion. Why? They're all ways of connecting us, helping us embody this great, great story. Why is this all important? Because let me try to be as clear as I can. So much of the discussion in the church and in many books back there in the bookstore about, are about how to speak to this culture. Okay, we, we want to say, oh, how, do we, how do we talk to this culture? And here's what I want to tell you. The culture is speaking our language. Okay? This is a culture that's speaking in story and metaphor, and that is our native tongue. Okay? We're actually primed to speak to this culture. The problem is, we are not speaking our native tongue. We don't think of our faith enough in story. We don't express it in these terms. Now, I am not worried about the future of the church. There's so much literature saying, oh, the church is going down. There's going to be no, no, no. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, right? But that doesn't mean certain expressions of the church live on because we've always had churches that come and churches that go and churches that rise up in their place. So the big question for tomorrow for the traditional church is this. Have we so wedded ourselves to modernism and to the Enlightenment that we can't imagine ourselves as living a story anymore? I mean, have we so tied ourselves to this way of thinking that as the world moves towards story, we can't make that adjustment? And I think it's an especially difficult question for Protestant churches Because we were born and bred in modernism. Okay? There's no pre-modern Presbyterians. Okay? We came out of this. It's part of who we are and it's part of our roots. And so we have extra work to do to try to sort out whether we can change our thinking or not. It's why uh, in a lot of seminaries, it's why you'll see more and more stuff in the books about uh, reading the church fathers. Okay, about reading from Orthodox traditions and all these other, because everybody's trying to grasp that. What does this look like if it's not so bathed in modernism? We're trying to dream about what a faith that is story-based and separate from the Enlightenment is like. And I'm arguing that story could provide some of that leverage for us. I mean, if our brains are wired for story, right? 
If our brains are out of story, life is like a story, and we naturally think and talk in story, and actually our faith was built around embodying us in the story, maybe if we can connect with how stories work, it can give us leverage for thinking about what the church of the future might look like. And I could do a lot with that, and I'm going to be spelling that out a lot more in my workshop, but, but I want to end with two things. First of all, I think pastors and leaders need to see their primary tool in ministry as story. Now, when I'm pastoring my people, I've got a whole bunch of stories in my hand. Okay? I've got the biblical story. Okay? I've got the whole story, the biblical narrative as a whole, and then I've got the one I'm preaching on, maybe. Okay? And I've got the church's story. I've got this tradition, and I've got my story in there, and I've got my people's story, and the story of my church, and the story of my community. And that the primary thing I do as a pastor is juggle those and mash them together and contrast them and let one critique the other. And I try to say to somebody, well, this in life is kind of like this over here. I remember um, when we had those riots in Charlotte a couple years ago. uh, It was one of those Sundays you you had to comment on it, I thought. And I didn't know what I was going to do. and, And I was planning to preach on the book of Esther. And then I got into the text and I found out, oh my goodness, Esther is about race, right? It's about somebody who's out to kill all the Jews and God not being okay with how that's working and wondering how God's going to answer that and answer those questions of power. See, that I'm, I'm taking this story over here written thousands of years ago and I'm saying, oh my goodness, that's today. That, that as the pastor, I'm dealing in story. That we read real situations from the Bible story. And that, the problem is a lot of our people don't know the Bible stories, by the way. Okay, my friend, my, my teacher, Len, was telling somebody, and she was going through, this girl was going through a lot, and he said, you know what you need in your life? You need a Nathan. And what he meant was, Nathan, to really tell truth in your life. And what she said was, I need a hot dog? <laughs> right? She had no reference for Nathan as a biblical character. What do I need a hot dog for? Okay. How are you going to live these stories if you don't know them? How are they going to know them if we don't teach them and encourage them to be in them? Now, let me, let me also be clear. I'm not one of those crazy storyteller guys. Okay? Actually, the more I've studied stories, the less I have been telling outside stories. You know what I mean? The less I have been anecdotal stories. Um, the more I've just learned to trust the story. That there's plenty of story in there and I don't have to pretend and I don't have to pull in another story. Sometimes it works great and sometimes the Bible's plenty of story. Um, so I don't think you always have to tell story. I'm arguing we need to think in story and we are not used to doing that. And let me say, I think a lot of our churches have writer's block. Okay? A lot of our churches are living kind of boring stories. Okay? Hey, a lot of our churches are living stories of the past. We're stuck in chapter 3. Okay? And I'm, a lot of our churches are, are strategically placed so that if the 1960s ever return, we are going to do really great ministry. And the problem is, some of our really forward-thinking churches, if the 90s would only come back and Shine Jesus Shine was popular again, we'd be great. Okay? And you know what? 1960s are getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror. The world is changing. And what we need is some new stories. 
And if we're stuck in the past, and some of our churches have had serious wounds, and I know people who have been abused and people who have gone through a lot of stuff, all of a sudden their story stops right there. Um, sometimes we need to retell some of those stories and bring some healing to the stories. But we need better stories. And, and here's the other thing. A lot of our stories, a lot of our churches are actually living much better stories than we're telling. They're doing a lot better stuff. We're just not celebrating it enough. We're not telling it enough. We're doing great things in the community. We need to learn to live better stories. If you want a great example of this, uh, I'm reading this book right now. It's a biography of Paul by N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright gets this. What he understands is that communities are built by story. So that when Paul is a, Paul is a Jew, this has been like this major realization for some reason in the last 40 years of scholarship. Paul is a Jew. And he thinks as a Jew. And he sees himself as part of the Jewish story. And what N.T. Wright throw, throw, uh, puts out in this book so beautifully is how when Paul encounters Jesus... He doesn't convert. Okay? What he sees is Jesus as the answer to the story he's been living his whole life. And, and it's a fascinating, fascinating read. And, and I really enjoy it because that's exactly what we need to do is the same work that Paul did. Because Paul then had to rethink all kinds of stuff. What about circumcision? And what about how we eat? And what are we going to... Paul has to work this stuff out because the story is different now. And God was doing something fresh and I think some of the work that Paul had to do is the same work that we have to do in our culture today. Now, I feel it only right in doing a workshop about a keynote about story to end with a story. I got this one from Pete, a guy named Pete Rollins. Uh, there was a border dispute, and no one was allowed to take goods from one side of the border to the other side of the border. And uh, the, the police in the area got word that somebody was doing that. They were going across, getting goods they weren't supposed to, and they were bringing them back over. So they did some investigating. They found out where the person was. And sure enough, they saw this guy go across the border, go somewhere, and come back with a wheelbarrow full of dirt. So they stopped him at the border there, and they said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm just, you know, out and about. They said, no, you're not. You're sneaking something. So they dig through his wheelbarrow and it's just dirt. They can't find anything that's supposed to be in there. And then they check his pockets. He's got nothing on him. And they say, all right, what are we going to do? We got to just let him go. So they keep their eye out. And a couple weeks later, they see him go across. And then he comes back, this time with a wheelbarrow full of sticks. And they, they stop him. They, they say, all right, we got you this time. They look through all the sticks, can't find anything. Look through all his pockets, can't find Fine. Uh, they got to just let him go. And this goes on. Years later, the border is not even there. And the one police officer is retired now, and he sees this guy come into the pub. So he said, all right, got to ask him. So he goes, he buys him a pint, goes over and said, all right, got to tell me what you were sneaking over the border all those years. And he said, well, I don't want to get in trouble. He said, no, 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 you got to tell us. I'm, the border's not even there. You, uh, uh, you, you, know, you can't get in trouble. I just got to know. He said, all right. Wheelbarrows. Yeah. <laughs> wheelbarrows. See, they were so obsessed with what was in the wheelbarrow, they didn't stop to ask whether the wheelbarrow was important or not. I believe story is the wheelbarrow of the gospel. Okay? I really believe that God could have written and inspired his word in any other way. And he chose to inspire story. He, he could have, God could have given us a systematic theology. He said, no, I'll let Karl Barth do that. 
I'm going to inspire story. He could have given us a commentary. He said, no, let John Calvin do that. I'm going to inspire stories. Jesus could have taught all kinds of ways, but he taught with parables. I don't think that's an accident. I think story is fundamental to how we share and how we look at the gospel. And I think we need to rediscover it again. So I'm encouraging you to think of yourselves as story pastors and story leaders. People who are reading the Bible as story, looking at their congregations as story, wrestling and thinking about the world as story. In fact, in the Presbyterian Church, we call ourselves ministers of word and sacrament. I've taken to calling myself a minister of story and sacrament. And I want to really encourage you to maybe think of yourself the same way. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for this great story. Thank you that we play a part in that story. Lord, we do not deserve that. But you choose to tell your story through us. You choose to have us with our imperfect hands help others embody that story. Teach us how to do that afresh. Amen. Amen.